Interesting words. Um, change our nation's back. Change the atmosphere. Um, I'm about to read you something that will help you see if you don't know how much the atmosphere has changed in this country and maybe why we would pray to change it back. Before I do that, uh, I've got an invitation that's going to follow the next thing I'm going to do after we do this. I need some volunteers. I'm thinking this will probably be boys and girls, but it's probably the ones who do it best. It might be some teenagers, and uh, it might be even some adults. Uh, but only come up if you can help us do this. I need somebody who can do a headstand, who can stand on their head. You have to be able to do a headstand and stand on your head. And I probably need a couple of dads to come up and just make sure we don't kill somebody or something here. So very good. All right. Three volunteers. Don't do it. Just stand up here for a second. I'm going to let you go in just a moment. But first of all, let me tell uh, what I was speaking of before. And then we're going to ask you to stand on your head. Um, Christmas Eve, 1945. Uh, you may not have thought a lot about Christmas 1945, but I hope about a year from now, Lord willing, that uh, as a church we'll think a lot about it, and maybe our whole community will, and that it'll be a platform for us, for us to share the gospel. World War II had come to an end earlier in the year, a few months before that. And the nation was celebrating their first Christmas in five years in which they were not at war. President Harry Truman, the new president and vice president has just become president and on that Christmas he addressed the nation for the first time in front of five microphones representing the great nation's biggest radio stations the national Christmas tree had not been lit for all of those years and here on Christmas Eve they would light that tree and the new president would bring this address to the nation he said that his desire was to wish my countrymen a Merry Christmas and a joyous days in the new year now notice some of the things he said. As he started the speech, he said, this is the Christmas that a war-weary world has prayed for through long and awful years. He went on to say, we meet in the spirit of the first Christmas when the midnight choir sang hymns of joy. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. He went on to talk about the manger of Bethlehem and how it was a new appeal to the minds and the hearts of men. He quoted Jesus, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. He made it clear that he understood that no matter Americans' victory, that the ultimate way it would be won would be this, whether it be for far or near, the kingdoms of this world shall become indeed the kingdom of God, and he will reign forever and ever, Lord of lords and king of kings. And then he said this, in love, which is the very essence of the message of the Prince of Peace, the world finds a solution to its oil, all its ills. He says, I do not believe there is one problem in this country or in the world today which could not be settled if approached to the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. In just a moment, we're going to read at least the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, but it may be appropriate to best read this sermon, or at least to hear it, standing on your head. You think you guys can stand on your head? All right, give it a shot. Stand as long as you can. Be careful. Oh, okay. Just hold that one. Just hold that one. Why don't you stand up for as long as he can be upside down when you don't, don't die on me or anything, but uh, stay as long as you can. Stand up. Let's read the Sermon on the Mountain. He may be able to see it best from his vantage point. It 
seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is Jesus. And he opened his mouth, saying, and taught them. And this is the upside-down part, isn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed for the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the cause of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Well, thank you, man. Um, you can come on down. Now, boys and girls, as you go home today, I want you to talk about this sermon. I don't think you're going to hear everything and understand it, but I think there's a lot of it you can get. And I want you to think about those words that I just read that we'll talk more about today. What does that have to do with being, with standing on your head, with being upside down? Because I'm going to tell you, you're a follower of Christ. And when the world looks at those who follow Christ and really understands and they, his people live what he says, to them it looks like everything's upside down. The truth is, God looks at us and knows how upside we, down we are, and he wants to make us right. We start this sermon with that hope. Father, we thank you for your word. It is an awesome thing to come to this almost incomparable sermon and word from our Savior and Lord. Help us to have a hunger to hear what you have to say about how we are to live, to know your heart for your kingdom. May we hear it as a challenge for those of us who have already entered into it, and may it be heard as a wonderful invitation as some will consider your claims on their life today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Speaking of volunteers, a little bit later, I'm going to need seven volunteers. These ought to be adults probably. Uh, you won't be asked to say anything. You'll only be up here about two minutes, but it'll be helpful to me, and it'll be good if quickly you'll be able to come. So just think you're ready to volunteer. The only one unique person in that group, if we have anyone here with a preschooler in their arms, uh, that would be great for one of those people. I, don't, I know bringing kids up here, we don't care what the kid does. Just if you could do that, that will help us. So we'll get to that in a bit. President Truman's appreciation for the Sermon on the Mount is certainly not unique in history. It has been a staggering sermon that has touched every generation. We call it the Sermon on the Mount probably because of the words of Augustine. He is the one who said it is the perfect standard of Christian conduct. Many of you, of course, are aware of the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the courageous Lutheran Christian who uh, stood against Nazi Germany and Hitler. His great book, The Cost of Discipleship, was an exposition on the Sermon on the Mount. John Stott, a wonderful Bible expositor, said the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is probably the least understood and is certainly the least obeyed. When I'm preaching this morning, what I, what I originally thought would be the introduction to my sermon, but it is the whole sermon today, is to simply walk us to the beginning of this great sermon that I my Lord's grace will be in probably for many months to come and to answer two basic questions about it. Who is this sermon for? And then how am I supposed to understand it? How do I approach it? What am I to do with it? 
So let's start with the shortest and easiest one. Who is it for? You look back at those two verses at the beginning of Matthew 5. The, the sermon is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He, it introduced with saying, Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up into the mountain. So who's it for? Well, among those who heard it that day were the crowds. Um, if you want to get a sense of who the crowds were, you have to go back to the previous chapter that leads into this. So back to chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus... Um, has been baptized. He has been through the wilderness temptation. Um, he has begun a public ministry. I think there's reason to think that he's been in Jerusalem, Judea. Things happened there. But now he's back in Galilee, which will be the headquarters of what he's doing. And we read in verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The fame of the Lord Jesus Christ is spreading. If we had a man in our day who healed the way Jesus healed, that is, there was no disease, no affliction, no, no struggle that a person could have, particularly on a physical or even emotional level, that he couldn't heal, that we don't have a record of it. And that will draw a crowd. It is important when we think of Jesus' miracles, because there's no one's done miracles like he has done, that while I believe that the Lord still certainly does miracles today, there was a uniqueness about what Jesus was doing, and clearly... God was authenticating the, the ministry and the words and the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ by the, the miracles he did through him. They were meant to, to say, listen to this guy. You can believe what he says. And there's no denying it because of the power of God being shown in his life. Well, everyone is curious. If it was today, Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and Facebook, everything else would be lit up with pictures and stories about these things that were happening. There was an electricity in the air. There were crowds that were looking for him. Jesus was not establishing some permanent headquarters. He was constantly on the move. But the crowds were finding and hearing and anticipating where he would be, and they were there. These crowds, as we'll see through the Gospel of Matthew, are a mixed bag. Some of them are people who are sincerely interested in becoming disciples themselves and, and want to considering a commitment. Others just, they like the spectacle and the, the excitement of it all and the newness of it all. And some in that crowd will eventually be those who are looking to undermine him and discredit him. So the crowd's a mixed bag. But there's not just the crowd there that day. As Jesus sits down to teach this famous sermon, we read also that when he sat down, which, by the way, is what the rabbi did. So church in those days... The teacher, the preacher sat, and the audience stood. Maybe we... No, okay. Um, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So there's not just the crowd. There are these disciples. I don't think, I don't know for sure, I don't think the disciples at this point means the 12 who will become the apostles in, in a set way. We know there are four of them there. There are two sets of brothers who are certainly among these disciples. They are those who are committed Matthew will not be called as an apostle until chapter 10, but he may have been there, and he may already have been one that considered himself a, a committed one. There would be more than just the 12 apostles who would indeed be disciples of Jesus through his public ministry. I remind you, at the end of his life, as he ascends back to heaven, as the church is formed, there's 120 of these disciples who have been following him and with him and committed to him in some way or another, uh, and they gather in an upper room as the church is being born. 
So these are people who are, are not just curious, they're not just, just testing the waters, but they are, are ones who are already making a commitment to, to follow him. I don't know that we're to understand them as those who have been, you know, born again, redeemed, justified, all that, but they're in the process, they're on the way, and their commitment is to know this Jesus. Which is to say that Matthew's entire gospel is written to be a help for discipleship. Matthew clearly is writing which seemed to particularly Jewish Christians. You see that all the way through his writings, and he wants to disciple them, and he recognizes that in Jesus and what he did among them in those three years of his ministry, mostly around this small group of a dozen men, sometimes even smaller groups, Jesus was giving the very things that we would need if we were to be disciples of Jesus Christ in our day. So that's who this sermon is for. It is first primarily for disciples, but as we will discover before even the sermon is done, there's a crowd listening in. That's sort of the way we do church here on Sunday morning. We do not try to tailor our worship service for non-believers. We're not trying to speak the language of the lost so that they feel very comfortable. We come as Christians and we gather and we sing songs that Christians, and quite frankly, only Christians can sing with meaning. And I try to preach and teach Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ. But we always welcome, and it's a great idea to invite the crowd, to invite those who aren't that saved, because that crowd as they gather, hopefully hear an invitation to come and be a disciple. And that may be some of you even today. Now, if you want to answer the question in the most straightforward way, what is this sermon about? What's the, the big rubric I need to put over it to, to understand it? It's about the kingdom of God. And, and yet as simple and as straightforward as that may seem, almost every commentary and every teaching on this will recognize that over 2,000 years, this sermon has been misunderstood. And usually the misunderstandings are not like they're completely false. There's, there's well, yes, that's right, but... Their overemphasis misses and causes us to forget and not see the big picture. Let me just mention a few of those. Let me start with it this way. Harry Truman missed this sermon. Now, it's not that he wasn't right about much of it, but he looked at this sermon like so many others, and particularly people, as you can imagine, leading nations or any organization, they, they see this sermon as a blueprint for social harmony and world peace and, and a man who was hoping to lead the nation so there wouldn't have to be another war like they'd just come through. You can see how this was right. And, of course, he was right. If the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is lived by, if even approximately, then, of course, it's going to make for a better world. If people forgive their enemies and, and control their anger and their... Their sinful fits and, and their lust and they live with integrity. Well, of course, the world is going to be a better world. But it's also clear from the context of the sermon, Jesus is not giving us a blueprint for social progress. He is speaking to disciples. The only place this sermon can really work are people who know who their king is. And if you don't know who your king and you don't honor the king, there's no way this is going to actually be lived out. So this doesn't work as a blueprint that the United Nations can take and make it happen in the world. It can't be the, the structure of your foreign policy. The Sermon on the Mount is about what life is like for those who follow Jesus. Now there's another approach that is kind of right, but it's also, when it's all said and done, wrong. And it's that this sermon is just more laws and rules. Now, Jesus clearly is speaking things that he says to us, his disciples, that he wants us to obey. He wants our lives to be like this. He expects that. But you can take the Sermon on the Mount and you can, you can press it in a way that is very legalistic. 
You can read it that way. You can read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you want to be in the kingdom? Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and God will be pleased with you. It's to forget the whole point of Matthew's gospel. He presents Jesus as the king, but he is the king who's come to be the savior. And, and we can take the Bible over and over in every place, and we can turn it into this kind of legalistic, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. And that's all we see. And, and to do that misses so much of what God wants to say to us. There are some people who can read the 23rd Psalm and turn it into a legalistic track. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Are you following the shepherd? How good a follower of the shepherd? And that's all they hear is the, the demands, the expectations, which we ought to hear, but there's so much more than that for us here. This sermon is the gospel. And we need to keep that in mind as we, we think how we're going to understand it. Sinclair Ferguson said about it this way, Some people see this sermon as a message calculated to produce the greatest possible guilt in the fewest possible chapters. I know that. Now, I want to tell you, when I come to this text, I'm not coming to a text that's, that is just another interesting place I've come to. This, these three chapters, probably like I suspect many of you, but these three chapters got a grip on my heart when I was a junior and senior in high school and the Bible was coming alive in my life. I'd been a Christian since I was a boy. I was a real follower of Jesus. I was serious about following him. Quite honestly, I thought I was a pretty doggone good kid. I'd read this, heard this, had been quoted, I must, a hundred times. But suddenly one day I opened the Bible and I heard my Savior speak these words to me. And it crushed me. It just crushed me. I realized how far I was from anything like the fullness that Christ expected in my life. And I have come back to it many times over the years and it still has much of that same effect. And yet it doesn't just crush me. There's something in it that's an invitation. There's something beautiful and attractive that grips your heart and you say, oh, more than anything else in this world, I want to be this person. And I hope and pray that you will see it in exactly that way. Yes, it should crush us. It is something like the Ten Commandments. You know, Paul talks about the Ten Commandments and how they are used as an evangelistic tool. They, they're not the way to salvation. They're the way that show us we need a Savior. You know Ray Comfort, and I think many of us have used that, where you, you talk to someone, and, they, and the average person on the street, they'll tell you they're a good person, just like going through the Ten Commandments with them. Have you ever stolen? Have you ever lied? Have you ever had a lustful thought? Have you ever uh, blasphemed the name of God? And then you remind them, just about, almost always on their own testimony, they'll admit they're, they're a big sinner. They're not good at all. Well, this goes it even further. And so we, we, we should be crushed, and it should be disturbing to us. But what Jesus is trying to do is not just crush us. There's more to it than that. He, he is preaching us a sermon that is indeed that invitation, that summons. And we need to take it on those terms too. There's another misreading of this sermon that I, I think we need to be careful. There's truth in it, but there's also, I think, can be error in it. And that is thinking that this sermon's only for our future life. There are certainly things that we know are not yet the kingdom of God is, is come. When Jesus came, the king came, the kingdom has begun. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, eternal life begun has begun in you. You're in the kingdom, but the kingdom is not yet in its fullness. All the richness, all, the, 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 all that's going to be there is not you're only getting parts of it, you're only getting a taste of it. And there's certainly that in, in what he says here. 
There are things about this sermon that won't be fully realized until we get all the way home with the Lord. So there's an ethic here that's, that's not yet, which I ought to let you in on it right now as much as I hope this will impact us as a church. When we get done, at whatever point that is, and we've thoroughly trusted the Holy Spirit to work in us, um, people are still not going to walk into King's Baptist Church and say, those people, man, they are perfectly like Jesus Christ. Those are people of the kingdom without fail, without blemish, not here, not today. I hope we're a whole lot more like it, though. I hope we're much more like it than we've ever been before. Now, here's the danger. You can take this future aspect of it, and you can say, well, you know, this just isn't realistic for life today. This, you know, you can't really live in this culture and raise a family and go to my school and do what I have to do and get ahead in my business and deal with people like I have to deal with them and live by this. And so we just put it off. There are many godly gospel preachers who hold a dispensational view about this sermon. I, I think there's all kinds of variations in that, and we all have some of that, but there has been some in that camp who've said this whole sermon is just reserved and it's only really applicable for a future thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And that's, that's where you look at it. This is, that's when this is going to come into play. It's going to be in that perfect day, or almost perfect day. That's when this will apply. And you really don't need to be too bothered about trying to get it done now. I don't think that's right at all. I don't think there's, there's anything that Jesus is saying here. This is simply for some future day, but it's, it's not for you now. It's not to be impacting you now. Indeed, it's hard to see how even this sermon fits in heaven are in a millennial reign of, of, of the perfection of those days. This sermon talks about when people come up and hit you in the face. Joe, you're not going to hit me in the face when we're in heaven, are you? So, This is what happens when people steal your cloak. How do you respond? That's not going to be. This is for now. This is for here. And we ought to take it that way. So, it's easy to talk about maybe how you don't interpret it. Maybe the, the help we need this morning is, so what do I do with it? What do I do with it? How, how am I begin to understand it now? Well, number one, I think like any passage of Scripture, you want to start with the context of where it's in the Scriptures, where it's in the book that it's from. This is where I need those uh, seven people. So I need one parent with a child if possible, and I need six other people come rushing to the platform. All you got to do is stand here, no questions, no words. Just I just need you to come be place markers up here to help us see this. Come on quickly. Here comes one. Here comes two, three. Here comes a, a grandma and a baby. That would be perfect. That's wonderful. Grandma, I know you're going to be over here. You'll be on the end. The rest of you just stand up here, one, two, three, four, five, and I need one guy on the end. So I, I get, uh, I've got three, four, I need five, six, seven. So come on. Here we go. All right. One, two, three, four, five. And if you'll stand on the end. Noah, I'll put Noah on the end. He's better looking. And... Uh, you just need to stand like this, all right? And I want you to face like this. And Lynn, I want you to sort of face like this and you guys in between. All I'm trying to do, and then each of you, I want you, I want you to hold up one finger. Just hold it that way. Two fingers, three fingers, four fingers, five fingers. All right. There you go. Context. Um, Sermon on the Mount is part of the Gospel of Matthew. And there's a very deliberate structure to Matthew. And I simply want you to see that structure. Matthew is got 
um, a bookend on each end. It starts with, in chapters 1 and 2, the origin and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord willing, we're going to be back in those two chapters in December. They're powerful and wonderful, starting with that, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, the genealogy. And so that's where it starts. It is booked in on the other end with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's why Noah's going to stand here for 40 minutes with his arms like that. Uh, But it reminds us of the cross. But in between, there are five clear sections. One, two, three, four, five. Now, you know, we, we organize our Bibles in chapters and verses. That was not inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are very helpful to us, but that's not always the best way to understand it. But Matthew has laid here for us in the way he wrote the book without chapters and verses. He's put some clear markers that says this is chapter, this is section one, this is section two, section three. And there's a similarity between all five of these sections. Each of the sections include events. Uh, moments, healings, encounters, confrontations, stories, if you will, that uh, things that happened around the life of Jesus. And then they conclude with a body of teaching, a sermon, a discourse, a, uh, a, just a body of teaching where one of the advantages you have in Matthew is you hear a lot directly from Jesus to his disciples. Jesus has a lot of face time in Matthew more than the other gospel writers. Uh, If you have a red-letter Bible, there's a lot of red letters in Matthew as Jesus speaks directly to us. And so each section has some of that. They have the encounters, they have the events, and then they always end with with the teachings. And then, then Matthew marks it so we know this section has just ended. So look with me. The first one we look with is the knee where we're at today in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7 of Matthew, notice verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Now, the important words I want you to see, the one he'll repeat over and over, are at the verse 28 at the beginning. And when Jesus finished. That's the phrase. That's the structure. That's Matthew's way of saying, section ended. The second section starts right after that. There's more stories and teachings. Uh, if you remember several years ago, we were in Matthew 8 9. I love those. And then chapter 10, very important, serious words about living and serving Christ. The end of t- end, chapter 10 ends and chapter 11 begins, the very first verse. Chapter 1, verse, chapter 11, verse 1, when Jesus had finished. Same phrase, instructing his 12 disciples. He's just finished that section. The next section, the third one, is chapters 11 and 12. There's more events and conversations that Jesus has. And then chapter 13 is that long accounting of Jesus' parables, of a teaching of the parables. And then we come to the phrase again, verse 53 of chapter 13, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away. Well, the rest of chapter 13 all the way through chapter 18 are many events out of Jesus' life. Some of those important people say the heart of the book are found in these chapters. They're... It finishes, though, with his teaching about the struggles of the kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. And it's come to an end in chapter 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings. And then the final section is chapters 19 through 25. There's more encounters. It's, the, the atmosphere is much more tense. There's more controversy. Jesus actually comes into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, all the things that happened there. And then it ends with chapters 24 and 25, which are, at least for me, the most perplexing, difficult to understand and interpret and teach chapters in the Bible. But they're glorious because they tell me the kingdom's going to face opposition, but he wins. <laughs> He wins. And if you get nothing else, it's, it's that, certainly, in those two great chapters. And then we read at the end of that, to know that at the end of that section, Matthew 26, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. And we move into this last area of, hey, there you go. And, uh, 
of the cross. Thank you guys for helping us visualize that. Appreciate it. Thank you. I say all that to say that when we're coming and reading the Sermon on the Mount, it is part of another book. Always the best way to interpret the Bible is with the Bible. And the way you start with interpreting the Bible, explaining the Bible, by the Bible, you usually start with the book that you're reading it from because there's a context within that book itself. And Matthew is over and over going to come back to the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to deal with them and explain them and open them up for us even more as we go through the book. Well, the, the second thing is really what I've already said in terms of how you understand it. What do you make of this book as you read it? What do you think about? And that's what we've already said. This is about the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about life in the kingdom. If you go back to chapter 4, that leads up to this whole sermon. We're told that from verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 23, he went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, doing all those healings. His message is repent, enter, receive the kingdom. Everything starts with the kingdom. The first part of the sermon, where we'll be for some time, is called the Beatitudes. Everybody needs to know the Beatitudes. There are eight of them. It may look like more to you, but generally we understood verses 3 through 10 as being the Beatitudes. The first one starts, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of Heaven. Now you notice this, we ought to mention it now. In Matthew's gospel, instead of saying kingdom of God, he says kingdom of heaven. Again, this is a reflection of Jesus, of Matthew's Jewishness, writing to Jewish readers and Jewish Christians. Jews had a great reluctance to use, to speak, or even to write the name of God. And so it was natural for them to, to substitute heaven there as a way of not speaking that holy name. But he means the same thing the other gospel writers mean. Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God. So the first one, the first of the attitudes, says the result of being poor in spirit is the kingdom of heaven. You go to the last one in verse 10, the eighth beatitude, and he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is going to be the kingdom of God. This is an, uh, a very definite way of writing, very Jewish way. It, it put, in a, put in a bracket around the whole thing. At the beginning and the end, you say this whole thing is about Life in the kingdom of God. Life in the kingdom of heaven. The other six in between are say different things, but they're all related to what it's like to be living in the life in the kingdom of heaven. He not only starts the whole sermon this way, you go to the end of the sermon, chapter 7, verse 21. It's near the end, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 5, he talks about uh, the law, and he says, Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, your righteousness has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, or you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 6, when he teaches us the model prayer, he says at the heart of that prayer, at the start of that prayer, is pray, thy kingdom come. He later says that the great priority of our lives has to be the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you. So the kingdom of God is at the, is at the heart of this. Now, there's a lot we can say about the kingdom of God. We always have to start real simply the kingdom of God is not some geographical place. It's not Disney World. Um, it's not some other place. The kingdom of God is not something that um, we build. We don't make the kingdom grow. We don't make the kingdom succeed. We can simply receive the kingdom. We can enter the kingdom. And the point is that when we do, more and more, our lives will be like those who belong to the kingdom. We are to live as those who belong to the kingdom. 
people in his kingdom should be the sort of people who makes clear that God is reigning and ruling. One of the worst things that happens to us is what the Bible calls being double-minded. One of the best things that will ever happen to you in your life is when you get settled, finally and forever, what your life is about, and especially if your life is about the King, Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns in your heart. I don't have to tell you, as Americans, how disconcerting and upsetting and, and what a mess it makes when we're not clear whose rightful leader is. Many of us have memories of Gore Bush waiting for some courts to decide who was our president. And then when President Trump was elected, there's an immediate group of people who began the resistance and for the whole four years really tried to undermine and say he's not our rightful president. And then when President Bush, or rather President Biden, became president, do I need to remind you of all the people who are saying that he's not legitimate, he's not our rightful leader, he's not, this creates a mess in a country. But I'm not here to talk about our country, I'm here to talk about your heart. You have a lot of loyalties to lots of things. You have a family, and you, you feel a loyalty to your family. You, pay, and you have a career and a business and a, an organization you represent that way, and you have a loyalty to it, and you have a loyalty to a church, and, and you have loyalty to a team, perhaps, and you have other loyalties. I'm here to say that what needs to get settled in the hearts of the followers of Jesus Christ is that above all of those loyalties is our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, even above loyalty to my country, Quite honestly, above my loyalty to the planet, above my loyalty to humanity, above my commitment to world peace, my loyalty is to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is king. And if you can get that settled, it'll change everything. And that's the call. That's the call of the kingdom. That's to live in the kingdom. And yet there are things that will undermine us, aren't there? We all, those of you with kids, you know about this. Those of us had kids, we've all experienced it. Kids are always looking for better leaders. <laughs> hey, mom, can I stay up late tonight? Can I have this extra piece? Can I do this? Can I have that? And usually the moms, the queens of the household, the monarch, usually wiser and more understanding of some things may say, no. Does that mean the kid just stops right there? You slip around the corner, you find dad off busy doing something. Hey, dad, can I have, can I go, can I get, can I stay? Now, if he's a wise king, I wasn't always. If he's a wise king, he'll say, what did your mother say? A house divided against itself can't stand, but every kid's out there prodding, poking, saying, you know, I don't like the regime I'm living under. I would like to make some changes there. And if I can find a way, I will do it. And you and I have hearts. Our sin nature wants to do that same thing. We don't like what Jesus has to say about sex and marriage and money and priorities and forgiveness and integrity and a lot more. And we're looking for someone to confirm us that really, oh, our approach is right. It really is okay. If we can find people at church like that who says, yeah, you don't, you, you know, I know what that's, but you don't, you know, you can, we're looking for those outs. And we need to be people who come to the Word of God and come to the Savior and trust Him as our King. Something else about this 
kingdom thing that has to do with how we interpret it. We have to understand it from the beginning. Maybe we started by just the upside down, head on their ground approach here. Life in the kingdom of God is a call to be different. If you understand that if, 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 if you're going to be called to the kingdom, you're going to be a very different person. It's too easy for us to reduce the Christian life so we're different. We, we don't do this, we don't do this, we do this, and we do these couple. It's so much more than that, isn't it, when you read this? I mean, that's what hit me as a teenage boy. I, I was a good little Christian boy. I, I didn't do the bad things I've been told not to do, and I, I was at church every week. I, and suddenly, oh, my stars! There's so much more. And the differences are so much more difficult to be. But that's what the call is. Again, John Stott says this is about Christian counterculture. And if Christian culture isn't counterculture, it's probably not very Christian. He says the heartbeat of the sound of the sermon you can find in chapter 8, chapter 6, verse 8. He just takes the first five words. Do not be like them. To a great degree, that's what this message is like. It's not the advice, it's not the worldly vision, it's not the, it's not the worldview and the, the, the things you're going to hear and be promoted to you a thousand times and, and every other media source in this country. Do not be like them. And all kinds of them are the people we're not to be like. Sometimes it's secular people. Don't be like them. Don't be like hypocritical religious people. Don't be like them. Sometimes the them is just the nominal followers of Jesus. Who want to pledge allegiance to Jesus and say, I, I, you know, but, but they're really not. <laughs> they've got very clear boundaries. They're not going there. Don't be like them. Sometimes it's spiritual show-offs. Don't be like them. And the horrible moments come when you look in the mirror. And you're letting the Bible be a mirror to your life. And you look in that mirror and you say, the them I don't need to be like is the them I've been being. We won't do it perfectly. We won't do it completely. It won't ever be fully realized. But the prayer of all of our hearts who love the Lord and love what God's calling us to be as a church is that when people encounter us as a fellowship, as a people, when they walk both into our classes, when they walk when we gather on Sundays, when people encounter us, they come away saying, those people, there is something so... Not, it's not that they dress funny. It's not like they're so culturally unaware. It's not that they're... But there is something so profoundly different and how they live and relate and live and prioritize that you can't help but miss it. Very quickly, there's two more things. We, we have to note that this way of the life, as upside down as it may seem, is the way of blessing. We have much to say about that word blessing, and we'll do some of that. And there's, I know you, you just, if, you pay, if you're aware at all, just what we read on the, on the, on the Beatitudes that we'll get to, there, there's some head-scratching to say, that how can that be the way of blessing? But it is. But the point is that this, what Jesus is saying, if you want real blessing, you're going to find it in me as your king, and it's going to look like this in how you live. It's... Very noted, many of you have noted, have pointed out to you, the last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. The last chapter is chapter 4. The last verse of Malachi is chapter 6. And there in chapter 6, or in chapter 4, verse 6 of Malachi, the last sentence of the Bible is go like this, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. But he doesn't stop there. He says, otherwise I will come and strike the land with a, and what's the last word of the Old Testament? Curse. It's curse. We, uh, we sort of overviewed the Old Testament and a little Bible study I'm doing on Wednesday nights, and we, 
We noted what a sad story ultimately the Old Testament is. How, how could it not be? John MacArthur puts it like this. He says, the Old Testament is the book of Adam, and Adam and his story are the story of the Old Testament. And it's a sad story. The first king on the earth was Adam, and it was said by God to Adam that he had dominion over the earth. He was the king. He was the monarch. But he fell, and since he fell, the Old Testament, of course, had to end with a curse. But when we come to the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament is Matthew. And Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is the king. And when he shows us the king, and the very first time we actually hear the words of his full sermon, it's not a word of cursing. It starts with blessed, 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 blessed. The blessings you are looking for and need come in this king. And then there's one final thing that we would say this morning. And that is, this sermon is all about knowing Jesus. It's all about knowing Jesus. You want to know what Jesus thinks? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You want to know where his heart, what really makes it beat? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You want to know what he feels about living and about the standards for life? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And remember, you're meeting Jesus here. Now, you can read this again. I'm sort of going back. You can read this and just see a bunch of do's and don'ts. And there are definitely do's and don'ts that are good to take in. No more porn. That's, be, you won't have to get very far in this sermon. You'll find there's, there's no place for that. No more excusing all kinds of foolish things you do because you lose your temper and your anger gets away from you. And, and stop the hypocrisy and, and love your enemies. Oh, for heaven's sakes, and so much more. And, but you can see all that and miss Jesus. Normally, I would tell you the way to listen to a sermon is try not to focus on the preacher. I hope and pray <laughs> most weeks that you don't focus on the poor preacher. When preachers do their job right, that's not what you leave, is thinking about the preacher and how he did this or whatever. So don't focus on the preacher when you hear a sermon. That's really good advice, almost always. But not on this one. Not on this one. This sermon compels us to ask, who is the one saying this to me? Imagine me or any other preacher saying what Jesus says. Chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil falsely on you, on my account. On my account, on the account of Frank Ellis. Blessed are you and you're persecuted for my sake. What would you say if I preached that? You're going to be blessed, blessed if you're persecuted for my sake. I think, I hope you would say, buddy, you're not that important. <laughs> I don't need to be persecuted for you. Jesus, several times in this sermon, says, you have heard it said. Without any other corroboration, without any authority, he says, but I, on my own authority, I say this. You hear a preacher talk like that, run from him, unless it's Jesus. In Matthew 7, he will talk about the judgment at the end of the age, and he'll say to some on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. If I said that, I hope you would say, I don't give a rip whether you knew me or didn't know me. It's not going to make a bit of difference on that day, but it'll make all the difference forever if I knew this Jesus who's speaking here. When Jesus finished this sermon, I don't know exactly what happened. I know a little bit about what happened, but I don't think people lined up and came by and said, oh, that was a nice message. 
I, I, that was sort of interesting. You held my attention today. I, I didn't fall asleep. And, oh, you had a couple of funny lines there. And I laughed. And that was good. And, and, and it's something to think about. I don't think that's what they did at all. They left amazed. And what they were amazed about was the authority by which he spoke. They had never heard that before. This compels us to look at Christ, to see Jesus, and to hunger for him. Ben rightly said that there's a subplot that goes through this whole sermon. If you, if, you, if you see it, it runs all the way through it. It's Jesus coming and asking a question. Jesus is asking very simply, are you with me? Are you with me? Yeah, I grew up in church. I've been a Christian all my life. My family's all Christians, you know, and we've always been churchgoers, and, and church has always been a part of our life. Yeah, I know, but Jesus wants to know, are you with me? Yeah, I started going to church, and I, I got plugged in the youth program, and we've gone on mission trips and did all kinds of exciting things. We've done this and that, and, and that's all well and good. Jesus wants to ask, are you with me? Do you know what it means to be my disciple no matter? That's the Sermon on the Mount. And we need a good, strong dose. We need to be discipled by our Lord and our Savior and our King from this wonderful, unrepeatable sermon. I remind you how Matthew ends. We're going to stand and sing in just a second here, but I want to remind you this morning how he ends. You know it. Matthew 28, and he came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What's he talking about? May not be limited to it, but it starts with the Sermon on the Mount. Disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, these are words for you. Standing. Father, thank you for this, your word, Father. Thank you for Jesus who spoke them. As crushing and challenging as they are, do we see them again as the high calling that you've given us? A picture of what you've called us to be conformed to as our life is transformed. And I pray that all those who are yours, that their hearts would beat with a hunger and a desire and an aspiration to say, Oh, God. Make me this person. I can't do this, but I ask you to make me this person. And Father, all those who are here today and they're just, they're just considering and wondering about whether to follow Christ, I pray that the beauty and the wonder, the thrill of this invitation to them to become this person by the shed blood of Christ, by what you will do in us, would be so compelling to them that they would fall on their face, receive forgiveness, and become your followers. May you do that in our hearts now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.